From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next. By now, most of us have seen the bright yellow billboards reading, City Hall is failing us. Today, a conversation with two of the people behind those messages. From our City Action Buffalo, Director Harper Bishop, and a member of their board of directors, Ariel Aberg Rieger. They say their prime motivation is to get citizens involved in the governance of their city, and to that end, to attend and speak out at today's City Hall public hearing on the mayor's budget proposal. And we'll have a conversation with Dr. Sylvia Lloyd. She grew up in the Cold Spring and Fruit Belt neighborhoods and is the author of The Buffalo Ten Massacre, spoken word poetry for healing and understanding, a social justice curriculum that offers teachers lessons plans on the subjects of white supremacy and white terrorism. Ariel Aberg Rieger and Harper Bishop of Our City Action Buffalo and author Dr. Sylvia Lloyd today on Buffalo What's Next. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Top congressional leaders will meet President Biden at the White House today to talk about the debt ceiling. Republican leaders and President Biden disagree on the terms. NPR's Barbara Sprunt says allies of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy indicate there are four areas of potential compromise, spending caps on federal programs, work requirements for some people on public benefit programs, permitting reforms to speed up approval for new energy projects, and clawing back billions on unspent COVID aid. Now, the source familiar with discussion said there's potential areas for common ground on the unspent COVID aid and permitting reform, but said the president and McCarthy are still very far apart on spending caps, those new work requirements for Medicaid and food assistance, along with revenue raisers like closing loopholes in the tax code. NPR's Barbara Sprunt reporting. The head of the artificial intelligence tech firm, OpenAI, is testifying today on Capitol Hill for the first time. OpenAI is the company behind Chat, GPT. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports company CEO Sam Altman met a bipartisan group of House members last night behind closed doors. The head of OpenAI is scheduled to testify before a Senate Judiciary subpanel in a hearing focused on AI regulation. Ahead of the hearing with Altman, the panel's top-ranking Republican Missouri Senator Josh Hawley said he's worried about privacy issues. I do think that we've got to give Americans some basic digital privacy rights, and we've got to stop the tracking and the buying and selling of private information without users' consent. I mean, that's just critical, and now we have AI on top of that. Lawmakers leaving a dinner with Allman last night said he told them AI is a powerful tool that can make society better, grow the economy, and improve lives, but warned against aggressive regulation. Claudia Rizales, NPR News. Stocks opened lower this morning as the Commerce Department reported a smaller-than-expected jump in retail sales last month. NPR Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell about 170 points in early trading. Retail sales rose just four-tenths of one percent last month. That's a smaller jump than forecasters had expected, although March sales figures were revised upwards. People spent more money in restaurants last month and less money at the grocery store. Sales at gas stations dropped by eight-tenths of a percent, even as the price of gasoline was up. Stock at Home Depot opened lower after the company reported disappointing sales for the first quarter and cut its outlook for the rest of the year. Demand for home improvement supplies is easing after a three-year boom. Manufacturing production rose by 1% last month, fueled in large part by automakers. Utility output was down, though, as warmer weather reduced demand for electric heating. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow is now down 166 points. This is NPR. 
Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. On Buffalo What's Next, we have with us two members of Our City Action Buffalo, the director, Harper Bishop, and also on the board of directors, Ariel Aberg Rieger, also a member of the leadership team as well. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. A lot of lots to talk about here. One of which, uh, one thing though, I know is a big priority for you, is tonight at City Hall. There's a budget hearing, right? This is a public budget hearing, correct? Mm-hmm. What, you know, as basic as it sounds, we also <laughs> yeah. know that not everybody necessarily goes to these things. Right. So some are unfamiliar. What is going on, and why should residents go right thanks jay for the question so we're gonna back up for the last couple of months we've been working on a campaign called city hall is failing us all we've seen the billboards (laughs) (laughs) good you've heard yeah you've heard about them around town you've seen them and so we we tried to highlight what it is that residents need to know about in their city Uh, And we know that the snow has melted and memories sometimes can be short. So Mm -hmm. we tried to use the billboards as a way to do public education and to get ready for people to understand that there is a budget hearing and that um, these are the the moments where decisions are being made. This is where we think about what our values as a community are about, um, what we're prioritizing, what needs to be in that budget, what doesn't need to be in that budget, right? And the absence of things being funded tell us what we prioritize and what we we value in our community. So um, this is the opportunity for people, and it's the one and only opportunity, unfortunately, right. for people to come together and to voice their opinions about the real investment that is needed in our communities and the marginalized voices and people who are oftentimes not heard, poor and working class people who are working several jobs, who are unable to make it down. This is a time for us to stand in the gap for them but also for people to come and be in person, and they can also testify virtually. So this is the opportunity where um, the mayor has released his proposed budget. It is um, the executive budget, but the Common Council has to um, amend it and then put it and enact it into law. Traditionally, how, do, how aggressive are council members when it comes to amending a budget? It's a really good question. So normally they aren't very aggressive. Normally they will take mostly what the executive proposes and they'll enact it and make just minor tweaks. This year, I think that we can expect them to be more aggressive because it is an election season and there's an election cycle. Uh, The June 27th primary is right around the corner. So people are going to be watching what their common council members are doing in this moment 
and we hope that they will listen to the people. Last year, we actually had uh, some successes. It was on the heels of, unfortunately, the white supremacist massacre at Tops 514, which, of course, we, we just marked yesterday right. or the other day right. as well. Um, and they did actually listen to the people in a myriad of ways, including not giving a large increases in salaries for some of the higher-ups in the administration, as well as ShotSpotter uh, was seen as um, a superfluous uh, sort of uh, expenditure and did not make it through. Interesting that you did mention also um, salaries. A salary commission just came about. Um, there, uh, you know, a lot about the process with this, right? Mm-hmm. The, the quick turnaround and yeah. uh, of it and, and, and such. What about that? What do we see inside the, the salaries that are, are being offered here inside that we've seen in these proposed salaries from these commissions? Because, uh, you know, how do they compare to other places? So, yeah, uh, this is, again, a really important moment. We feel that this is similar to redistricting. I'm calling it redistricting 2.0. <laughs> okay. It's the same players. We have the same chairperson, former council member Dave Franzek, was the chairman also of this commission. Uh, They rush it through very quickly. There are reports that they have broken both state and local laws, similar to how they did in redistricting, to get this passed. Um, And the 12.6% increase that is being uh, proposed is, is, uh, I think, to a lot of people very shocking, especially because um, raises were just given in 2019. Mm. Uh, And the report that came out um, was copied mostly from that 2019 report, and it was found that they were not looking at comparable cities. Uh, when you look at it, it is um, percentages much higher than what other comparable um, city uh, lawmakers are making in the same seats. Uh, so this is a very generous gift that the council members have uh, given to themselves. And much like redistricting, again, they're the people who will control whether or not they pass uh, by June 15th. So it is both a part of the budget and less than 1%, but it is also apart from it in the process. Um, and they have till June 20, June 15th, like I said, to uh, make that decision. So the, but yeah. if they've approved their raises, it would go into this budget? Yeah, well, there's there, it's, a, it's a separate process, right. but essentially it, when you look at um, – what is in the budget, it will it will be accounted for right. within it. So, uh, you know, the mayor has come out and said that he does not think it is the appropriate time for it. Uh, Joe Gal- uh, Councilmember Joe Golumbeck has also said that he didn't want to see it move forward in the first place. And now it's kind of stuck in the Common Council because I think they're recognizing and realizing that there are people who have eyes on this and that they did not follow the correct procedure to even be authorizing uh, the raises that they're trying to uh, give themselves. So, um, again, I see this very similar that now there are watchdogs like our City Action Buffalo and others who are calling out and holding accountable elected leaders to the processes that are are written in the local and state laws. And that's, again, we don't think that this is a partisan uh, you know, effort. And, you know, this is really us just saying that there is a process to follow. If that process is followed, then we can look at what the raises, um, you know, are. Um, and then we get to the point where we, we see that the raises, again, um, in reported from um, re- resident researchers is is completely off according to, um, you know, what what is comparable in other places. 
And bringing clarity and visibility to that process is so important, right? I think when you think about budget hearings, I, as an average Buffalonian, think of like super dense spreadsheets that I don't understand. You can go online, you can download the PDF, and it is impenetrable. It is like hundreds of pages Mm -hmm. of dense line items that sometimes even professional policy analysts have trouble deciphering. So I think to ask your average Buffalonian to both go in, do that research, follow when it's being released, when it's not very clear to us when it's being released, try to parse that information if you're not necessarily some kind of accounting Excel genius, um, (laughs) is is too much to ask. And so I think a big thing that we're always thinking about both with redistricting and with the budget now is this is our city, these are Mm -hmm. our dollars, this is our process, and it should be accumbent upon our elected leaders to both explain it to us and try to convince us that this is the best way to spend our money. Mm -hmm. And so I think that with tonight and with everything else, the more people can come in and the more we can kind of demystify that process Mm -hmm. and make people feel like they are very much a part of it and very much invited to be a part of it. I think that that's what we're trying to do. So just to follow up then on the process of, like you said, there is this document. It's available. We can all see it. I wonder what you said. <laughs> what you said. <laughs> uh, um, an Excel spreadsheet. I, I knew I wouldn't be able to read it. Um, <laughs> so I'm not sure what it puts me uh, in terms of the rest of the residents here. But to that then, so mm-hmm. what are we, are we, is the, is the focus going to be more on, hey, let's slow this down and try to go through this piece by piece? Or is it, let's get in the demands for the city that our neighbors, our constituents want. What 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 are we looking for at the at the public hearing tonight? Yes, unfortunately, the um, charter dictates that it, the budget has to be passed by May twenty second. Okay. So it's very difficult. So there's to not going to be a lot of time for demystification. However, yesterday we hosted a workshop uh, to do that. The people's workshop in which we go and try to teach people in a, uh, in a popular education model because there are also people who know as much as we know, if not more, uh, and we look to them to help us to demystify and decode the budget and that, that very large PDF that Ariel just spoke about. Um, at this point, we are going in there with a list of sort of uh, requests, suggestions, amendments that can be made. We have done that work with residents. We've been talking to them. Uh, we wish... Uh, that our municipal government was doing that work because there are people and residents that are incredibly interested in these things. We'll talk in a moment about visual storytelling, and Ariel can tell you all about the work that we've done at our City Action Buffalo to make things more palatable and accessible. We're always thinking about accessibility. We're always thinking about how it will land with residents, what we're hearing from them, how we're taking their message and spreading it. That's really what we are. We're, we're a conduit in many ways. We're you know These aren't our ideas. These are really coming from the grassroots, and we would hope that council members and municipal government would be in the same business, that they would be thinking about how to make government more participatory so that people can have a say no matter their socioeconomic background. So you went about finding a way to demystify this. <laughs> I mean, you we're trying, right? Should, like we, we like hard problems at our city action buffalo. Um, no, and I think that tying it back again to redistricting last summer is so important because right. what we saw there where we did a series of visual stories, you know, like simple handwritten visuals that we put on social media that we put on places where people will encounter them in their everyday lives. You know, like we're not tucking this behind some hidden broken link on a city website. Like we're, we want people to understand 
understand. And I think when you want people to understand, the way you communicate is very, very different. And so we found through our visual storytelling last summer with redistricting and through our billboards this spring that people are hungry to be a part of this process. People are hungry to change their city for the better. And people have so many ideas because they're doing this work. They know what it's like to not be able to afford rent. They know what it's Mm -hmm. like when their children are struggling or are testing with high levels of lead because their drinking water is poisoned. And I think when you have that level of lived experience with a city that is so deeply failing its residents in so many ways, you have ideas about how to fix it because you're forced to fix it yourself every single day Mm -hmm. when our elected leaders are not. And so I think that what I am constantly frustrated with as a visual storyteller is how the information that is put out is so closed. It is a closed door. Hmm. I think that the way... Closed, I mean, can you expand on that? Closed, I think that when you have a process that people don't understand, when you have a document that people can't parse, and then you put the onus on the person and you say, well, we we posted it. We did what we were supposed to do legally. It mm-hmm. is online. You could have found it. I think that that, to me, is telling me if people have not found it, if people cannot read it, it's your fault, not theirs. I think that If you want someone to understand something, you can put it out in a way that they will understand it. And we have found that again and again with the storytelling that we've done, with the workshops we've done, with meeting people as learners in whatever capacity they need, whether that that is sitting in a group session or reviewing something together, whether that is putting something out more visually in shorter kind of chunks. When you do that, they respond so powerfully. It is so clear that the problem is not lack of interest on residents' mm-hmm. part, but on how the information is being conveyed. And so we're always pushing and always seeking for new ways to do that communication. It's, I'm glad you said about the response, Ariel, because and I was thinking about this as you were speaking, Harper, as well. What kind of traction is our city action getting in the city right now? What are you seeing that's concrete? Yeah, well, I think when the mayor was asked about the billboards and about us, he didn't say who. he didn't say say what (laughs) you know he had had an exact response and we don't agree with his response but we do believe that he knows who we are and that the it is gaining uh, major traction and we're seeing front page articles being written about the work that we're doing um, and folks are very interested there is nowhere that I go on a given day where if I'm wearing my uh, City Hall is failing us all, that people don't react and immediately ask where they can purchase the shirt. Or we had a person come up to us just uh, over the weekend who said, I have said these very words to the mayor, to his face, because I believe that to be true. We had no connection to her. We don't know her. But we're building a relationship now because we were wearing a shirt and willing to say the truth, right, which I think Jillian Hainsworth was just on the show, and uh, right after 514, she said, we don't need Buffalo strong, we need Buffalo honest. Mm. And that's all we believe that we're doing is being honest, and we think that we're taking um, conversations that people are having in barbershops and in text threads and on porches with their neighbors, and we're putting them just in locations where everyone can see. And this is the truth. We're speaking the truth, and we're speaking everyday people's truths, um, and we're proud to do that. And just to follow up, I mean, I'm glad you did mention that the mayor did know who, uh, <laughs> who, who was putting the billboards up. But at the same time, he did ask our, our reporter, and I'll ask you the question, is, who, is, who is paying for these billboards? A simple question. Yeah. 
we believe that everyday residents are paying for these billboards and because they are. Um, most of our funding comes from grassroots uh, individuals who believe in the mission be behind our City Action Buffalo. And so those are grassroots funding. Uh, we have no major contributors. Uh, we do not get funded, unlike the There's mayor. There's no nefarious. We don't have Carl Palladino. We don't take it. We don't we have Carl Palladino, yeah. Nick Sinatra. You know, we do not have big developers and big moneyed uh, Buffalo elite uh, who are, are funding. Uh, so all of ours is, is through everyday people, everyday residents, and, and grassroots fundraising. We're talking with Harper Bishop uh, this morning and also Ariel Aberg Rieger from our city action Buffalo. All right, the issues for the public hearing tonight. There's uh, obviously you've been going through this, you've been thinking through it, you've demystified this this budget proposal on your own. What can change in this budget? What could be amended? What are we, what are we looking at in terms of priorities? So uh, last night we heard from people during a workshop uh, that there are many uh, different pressing priorities. We did just a, a small brief um, sort of uh, survey of individuals who have seen the billboards, who have been talking with us. Uh, their priorities land on things such as real investment on the east side. Uh, that ranked amongst the highest um, from individuals um, in terms of what they want to see. And that's see. interesting, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about your surveys are branching out all over the city. Yeah, it's not yeah, just yeah. Oh, yeah. In the east yeah. Side. So, so yeah. there's a, a general interest in a belief general belief in and interest, putting yes. in investment in the east side. A hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, and you're right. Uh, our residents and the people that we work with are from every corner, and that is the most, you know, held belief. Um, housing, of course, is a huge uh, point for for many many people. Uh, the rent is too damn high. <laughs> uh, we remember the days, and they are long gone, where you could scrape together three four hundred dollars and pay rent. That is no longer the case. I heard of market rate in the Fruit Belt fifteen hundred dollars over the weekend. Uh, that to me, I could not come up with fifteen hundred dollars to pay a monthly uh, rent. You know, that's that's about the same as my mortgage right. uh, at this current moment. Um, we saw from people public transit being an investment being there. Folks want to see the city uh, schools be invested in. That that number has not changed in almost a decade, if not more. Uh, and so they want to see real investment there. So people are talking about, oh, lead abatement, of course, uh, which we will see coming through American Rescue Plan dollars. Um, there's $10 million proposed. Uh, we, many of the issues on our billboards have been addressed through the, the, uh, that, those dollars. Um, through American Rescue Plan dollars will also help low-income residents. But we also know that that money um, will not be around for, very, for much longer, right? And so that revenue replacement that is now be, the city is benefiting from, that means that our city doesn't have a lot of money. And so they need to really think about how they're taking in money and how, where, where they're placing it. And it needs to be strategic um, in, in where that money is being placed. So these are some of the things. There's, there's plenty more that people sure. said, built, you know, climate, um, uh, prepare, emergency preparedness coming out of the blizzard. People are still thinking about that. Um, they're also still wondering when those folks will be memorialized in any way. Uh, and, and so there's all those things that we've discussed. Um, but I think that's the deep investment that we want to double down on and say what it is that we're for, what it is that can make a better Buffalo, and that is we're here for a solution-oriented uh, conversation. And I, I don't want to monopolize too much time on, on some of my tangents here, but what about, though, as you look at the budget? Now, I, I, the city's only, 
only has so much in terms of resources. Like you said, we've got American Rescue Plan funds for now. It's not going to be there. How much can this budget really be shifted to make investments that will make the kind of difference that everybody wants to see? I mean, do you feel like it's, it's unlimited or are we, is there only going to be so much that the, that the city can do? I mean, of course, it's not unlimited, right? right? And I think that we know that. I think that residents don't think that there's like a secret pot of gold at City Hall that they're right. sitting on and not giving to us. Um, I think that one thing that I'm always shocked by is that this is their job, right? Like this is a huge part of their job is to make the city run and make it run well um, for their residents. And I know that they released a survey this year, which I a transparency advocate I'm always super excited about right sure. so they asked a lot of questions um, and I filled it out dutifully as the resident that I am engaged um, and I think that I was laughing halfway through because the way that the questions were phrased is there was questions like would you like nice roads or sidewalks would you like mm. to have poisoned water sometimes I mean that was not a question but I think Sorry. that the, but generally it was just and the last question I believe it was the last question in the survey was do you have any idea where we might find some more money or what we should do with it? And I was like, my friends, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think that it, it, I, as a visual storyteller, would never call the Common Council and say, how do I use Photoshop and can you write a sentence for me? Like, I think that there are things that they should be coming to us and they can also tell us yeah. this is where we're at. Like, this is what we're doing. And I think that I do not know personally exactly how much money is at play or how much we can change, but sure. I think that the most we can do is keep pushing on them to say, tell us, tell us what you're working with. And so much of what I find our relationship is in these types of campaigns is to force them to do that, right? Because I think when when they go unchecked, they won't. And it is so easy for the budget to kind of just careen into whatever interests they feel like championing. championing. And I, I don't think that's how it should be. So I think that they should tell us, how much money do we have? You don't have money? O okay, then what is left? Why are you spending it on these things? I think that those are questions that should be raised in a public forum. And I think whereas Ariel was laughing halfway through, I found myself wanting to throw my computer, crying. quite honestly. <laughs> I mean, for the sad same, laugh. For this very same reasons that, you know, Ariel cited is like this, is, you know, this is your job and you're asking us to now find revenue generation for the entire city. There's some things that should be asked of residents and then there's other things that should not be expected of them. Those questions also in this survey were sort of I felt disrespectful and insulting and, and disingenuous, to be quite frank. Uh, because I thought to myself, if you had listened to residents all along the way, I've heard, you know, I've been doing this work for a very long time. I've heard residents and community organizations give these answers many, many, many times over. The, the people are speaking. They're speaking very clearly. Are our elected officials listening is the question that is now at hand. And then the question I have then, so this public hearing is tonight. Tonight. What kind of turnout do you think you're going to get? Jay, I'm expecting because of this recording right now. Oh. <laughs> Come on down. Come on down. Be there uh, You know, we, no, we expect a good turnout. We expect that, um, you know, we don't think that we'll see 150 people like we saw at redistricting, right? Because that took just a, a, a large amount of organizing in a moment that was, um, for all the reasons, just led to a, a moment where people were hyper-engaged. But I do think that we're going to uh, see and hear 
from a lot of folks who have taken the council budget survey, who have written to their council members. Uh, so even if you don't see them, uh, you know, physically there or virtually, they have spoken to, you know, behind the scenes already. And then, uh, you know, I think we'll see, you know, 30, 50 people turn out to this, which, again, will have happened because resident leaders have sounded the alarm and made sure that folks were um, engaged. Uh, when you hear this kind of faux disappointment from elected officials that they were hurt that or they they were disappointed to see that only one person showed up to the public hearing. Mm. You know, those are the moments where I, I think, well, if you if you told yeah, them it was you, happening. <laughs> if you told them or or if you're so disappointed time and time again, you would use your social media, you would use your platform, you would use your um, newsletters, your e-newsletters to get the word out and to make sure that your constituents are there and they're they're engaged and they're um, participating. So, um, you know, we we don't we're not here to place blame. We're trying to figure out how to do better and how to be engaged and how to get those ideas out. And uh, we think that we'll have a good showing because we've been talking to people in the community all along the way and all through the process about this. And the billboards were really a kickoff to us trying to get attention onto uh, the city budget. And for that, we're, we're proud. And uh, the hearing is at what time? 5 p.m. 5 p.m. Yep. Down in council chambers uh, in City Hall, or there is a link that people are uh, able to virtually, um, you know, uh, speak. They have to sign up to speak. There's a link on our uh, Facebook page, on our Instagram, uh, on Twitter. Pretty much anywhere you go in this moment, you're going to see and run into on our platforms, uh, you know, the link to sign up to speak. You can also, I'm sure, uh, do it right in the moment. That's often how it goes. So we imagine anyone that just shows up to City Hall can go ahead and uh, sign up on the spot and, and have their opportunity to speak. You'll have three minutes, so you should know that. You know, it's a very limited time. <laughs> it goes fast. Uh, it goes very fast <laughs> when you're trying to, you know, uh, change a system. So uh, three, min three minutes. Is three minutes to change the system. <laughs> Yeah, right. well, exactly. <laughs> well, and then visually in there too, it's like they only when they put you up on the screen, they only show the timer. So like you want to see someone's face, but when you watch the live stream, it's just a giant clock down, clock like ticking, and then the person in the corner speaking. All right, um, final question for both of you then. Yeah. Um, you do you feel uh, of all the things that have happened in the city of Buffalo in the last year? Mm. Do you feel that 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 energy, that uh, a lot of tragedy, too much mm. tragedy, of course, yeah. um, is is finding finding some legs and and making it making a difference or the type of energy that's needed to make a difference. What do you think? I think people care. I think Buffalonians care so deeply about mm -hmm. each other, about their kids, about all of our children, and I think that people are tired and I think that people are hurt and I think that people have lost a lot. Um, but I also think that one thing we've seen time and time again is people standing up and helping one another. And I think that people want Buffalo to be better. People want Buffalo to be kinder. People want Buffalo to be a place that they can live in and thrive in. And I think that I remain hopeful that our elected officials will see us 
and realize that we're on the same team. Like, we are not going against them. Like, we are all here trying to build a better Buffalo. And I think that even with this campaign, when we're pointing out these intensely brutal truths about the city that we equally wish were not true and have been true for far too long, the driver of this campaign was towards a website called A Better Buffalo is Possible. And we do the work we do because we believe that so deeply. And we see in the people that we work with every day that they believe it too. And what we are asking yet again is for City Hall to believe that with us and to work with us to create the city we know can exist. You know, look, drop the mic at that one. Yeah, (laughs) I think she said it. (laughs) I think so. so. Well done for sure. Ariel Aberg uh, Rieger on the board of directors for our City Action Buffalo. The director is Harper Bishop. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. We have to take a short break. We'll be right back with more Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to Buffalo What's Next. Jay Moran here, and our guest for the remainder of Buffalo What's Next this morning is Dr. Sylvia Lloyd, author of The Buffalo Ten Massacre, spoken word poetry for healing and understanding. Dr. Lloyd, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Great to have you here with us. Uh, Obviously, lots of serious and important issues to get in here with this conversation. But you describe this as a social justice curriculum. Yes. Take uh, take us through what that means. Uh, what that means is that we want our uh, children to focus on social justice. Uh, they were very present uh, during the 2020 protest after the murder of George Floyd. Uh, they were out there protesting and marching, uh, but we didn't see them do everything Uh, correctly. Like there was a report of some young attorneys uh, who threw Molotov cocktails. And we really want our children to move smart and to to be effective and not have to risk their careers uh, just, you know, searching for justice. Uh, So we know that uh, they should look to their progenitors, people who have done this before uh, in the 1960s. And even prior to that, uh, starting this country with the abolitionist movement, um, with uh, Frederick Douglass, <laughs> uh, you know, people uh, have left a blueprint to follow where we can change the laws in this country. Uh, we can pursue justice in an effective way. And as uh, Frederick Douglass said, um, it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. I like the way that sounds. That's <laughs> a, a inspired thinking, of course, but look who we're talking about, right? Right. <laughs> um, so... The way you have structured this book, you've got a series of uh, spoken poems, is what you call them, and also then you lay out lesson plans for teachers. So it's a it's a it's a kind of a wide spreading type of approach to this topic. But yes. it's interesting to hear how you go through your spoken poetry. You go right into you make allusions to some of the greatest tragedies, outrages in the history of America, for sure. Not the least of which, of course, 
was right here in Buffalo. And I know you have a, mm-hmm. a piece right there that you could read to us, please. Mm-hmm. Uh, say their names, the Buffalo 10. Um, I saw a researcher out of uh, Virginia uh, named Zoe Spencer who focuses on uh, women uh, who have been um, brutalized by the police or wrongfully arrested or incarcerated. And she did something called Say Her Name. Okay. So I said, someone should do that for Buffalo. So I just threw this together uh, quickly. Um, say their names. Ruth Whitfield, age 86. Pearl Young, age 77. Catherine Massey, age 72. Say their names. Hayward Patterson, age 67. Celestine Cheney, age 65. Geraldine Talley, age 62. Say their names. Aaron Salter, age 55. Andre McNeil, age 53. Margus Morrison, age 52. Say her name. Roberta Drury, age 32. Thank you for reading that. Um, mm-hmm. And I could see as you were reading it, and I can appreciate it, the emotions inside you, right? You've written that. You've probably proofread it thousands of times, yet still saying it. It hits home. Yes, yes. We have to say their names. We have to remember them, or this will be swept under the rug. You know, we'll forget all about it. I've actually spoken to people uh, who said, oh, this just happened. You know, they couldn't believe, like, this This just happened, you know, not too long ago. Uh, because once it's reported on in the news, then they go to the next one. And the next one, after Buffalo, there was uh, Rob Elementary School in Uvalde, and then dozens of others after that. So we just want to make sure we remember Buffalo. This did happen, and as long as we remember them, they will live. They will live through us. And I think I speak for a lot of people when we say that not only they live, but live to make major changes here in the city of Buffalo yes. as well. Yes. You uh, go through five different lesson plans. Um, mm-hmm. You start off with the, you show the example of the top shooters uh, shooting and, of course, in, uh, mentioning their names as well. But you get into white terrorism. Yes. You know, and it's uh, very powerful when you list some of these different, you know, different occasions and mm-hmm. outrages. Emmett Till, of course, from mm-hmm. the 1950s. The 22 caliber killer. Talk about something that's been somewhat forgotten. Right. Right here in the city of Buffalo, of course. Right. Who terrorized uh, so many here in, in Buffalo. The Freedom Riders, who of course were murdered, the Birmingham bombings, uh, and Cynthia Wiggins, another name mm. that has been somewhat forgotten. Remind us about Cynthia Wiggins. Uh, well, the uh, Wadden Galleria Mall, when it first opened, you know, there was excitement. You know, there was boom in Back the Back when people couldn't wait to get to malls, yeah, right? Couldn't yeah, couldn't wait to get there. They, they go ahead and make this policy that uh, buses are not allowed on their property. Uh, so, you know, that's a red flag. Like, why? You know, you right. don't want certain type of people there. Maybe they didn't want teenagers there. I don't know. But it really uh, kept, like, um, uh, like, poorer, lower class uh, people from the city from from going, uh, they had to cross eight lanes of heavy tractor trailer traffic uh, just to get to the mall uh, once they get off the bus. And so that's what happened to uh, the 17-year-old girl, Cynthia Wiggins. Uh, she was able to get employment at the mall, but getting there, you know, posed a very serious uh, challenge, uh, which was dangerous. It put her in danger, and that's kind of what um, this this policy. It um, kind of stemmed from, you know, exclusion, redlining, um, 
and it caused a danger. So uh, white supremacist violence, is it causes danger to all of us. And it's something not only just the number of people who have died at the hands of this, like the 10 that happened here in Buffalo, mm -hmm. but it also it reverberates throughout the community, doesn't it? Absolutely. It, it, it causes anger. <laughs> and uh, people were outraged. And uh, anger is not always visible. You know, you don't see it. Uh, there wasn't, um, I'm not sure if there were protests over this, but it's highly written about. Uh, when I was doing research, I saw it referenced several times. The uh, By academics. Yes. Yeah. And the news media. Our guest this morning, Dr. Sylvia Lloyd, and we're talking about her book, The Buffalo Ten Massacre, Spoken Word Poetry for Healing and Understanding. So let's move through the, the curriculum a little bit because mm -hmm. you, you, if, it sounds like the one thing that you think is very important, of course, is to remember these tragedies, these outrages um, that have happened throughout history as well. But then you have a process to help try to move forward and use that, I guess, for lessons to be learned moving forward, but also a little bit of fuel to keep pushing forward, right? Yes, yes. Uh, because I'm a Christian, so there's a scripture that comes to mind, um, Romans 13. Um, I forget the verse, but it says, return injury for injury to no one. Uh, so it's very important to contextualize this, uh, to define it, you know, what it is and where it comes from. And uh, that's why I start out with um, the white terrorism. Uh, we, because um, all white people are not white supremacists, <laughs> and all white supremacists are not white. Uh, you know, there are some, we're all being indoctrinated daily with white supremacist ideology. You know, it's an ideology that's deeply embedded into uh, the curriculum in school, and we all learn it. Uh, even uh, black people uh, learn it, and we learn to um, respect all of the accomplishments of you know, the white man, even at the detriment of our own community. Uh, so we have to learn that, then we have to unlearn it, then we have to relearn. Uh, so we learn, unlearn, and relearn. Uh, and once we can do that, then we can have an open mind and we can try to heal. And I always say uh, hurt people hurt people, but healed people healed people. So we have to focus on the healing first before we can fix this. <laughs> so uh, lesson plan two, uh, understand the role of resiliency. How can we create a plan for resiliency despite injustice? Uh, we have to go inward <laughs> and we have to um, talk about um, kind of like therapy. So right now, the current model in education is uh, resiliency is not taught directly and explicitly. Okay. And all people are not resilient. You know, you may That's become sure. resilient, you may not. You know, you may have a downward spiral. Uh, so uh, currently, uh, if a classroom teacher observes and documents uh, abnormal behavior, then they'll refer the child to a healthcare specialist in the building, uh, which would be a school psychologist or a counselor or something to that effect, a social worker. And then the child may get instruction on resilience. Uh, however, in this book, uh, what I propose in Lesson Plan 2 is that 100% of the student body learn about resilience. Okay. And I've actually tested this lesson plan on a group of fifth graders, and they're not even aware of what the word resilience is. Uh, they're not aware that this is a concept. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah, so. so how do you go about then? Like you said, you don't mention it. 
which I guess maybe is a good thing, right? You don't want to have someone think, oh, if I follow these lessons, I'm going to have this characteristic. Right. So at the same time then, so how do you go about embedding that, teaching that? Uh, we want to uh, look at examples okay. of uh, maybe like rags to riches stories, you know, uh, something that children would understand. Uh, so, for example, I use Tyler Perry, the example of Tyler Perry, how he was homeless. And he in his childhood, he experienced lots of abuse, uh, verbal abuse, psychological abuse uh, and sexual abuse. Uh, so the kids, I try to meet kids where they are, and they're familiar with Tyler Perry because right. he's popular because he's of everywhere. pop culture. <laughs> yeah, and they know Medea, the Medea character. Uh, so they kind of hone in on that. And um, then I take them to the ACES uh, test, which is uh, ACE is an acronym for Adverse Childhood Experiences. Okay. Uh, it's an actual test that anyone could take to see how much adversity we're experiencing uh, in our childhood or we previously experienced in our childhood. So your score could range, you know, low or high, and that can be an indicator of uh, what services you may need or, you know, how resilient, how, how much you need to focus on resilience. Sure. Yeah. I'm interested in that test. So how does that how is that judged? I mean, it, I mean, I can't imagine it's like an SAT quite oh, no, test no, no, or no, like no. that. It's very simple, very basic. Like it asks uh, questions such as, um, <laughs> did you ever, uh, were you ever verbally abused in your childhood? Okay. Did you not have enough food? You know, were you homeless? Did any, uh, did anyone ever touch you inappropriately? Hmm. Uh, things like, did you lose a parent to death? Uh, death is an indicator of adversity. Uh, things like that. Okay. So and some people score high. They had all of that happen to them. Hmm. Some people would say, oh, just one. <laughs> right, just one. Yeah. And so then from there, how, how is that information then utilized? Um, it's it's kind of um, self-serving. Uh, I don't know. Self-serving, self, uh, yeah. self-diagnosis. -di right, just to be aware. Right. Just awareness, basically, of, um, you know, what you're dealing with. Because sometimes uh, we're not aware in the moment, and trauma has that effect on us. Trauma has no time or place. So if we experience something in our childhood, uh, we may continue to feel it daily as if it's continuing continuing to happen in that moment. Uh, so um, children experience that as well. Um, you know, they're, they're experiencing trauma, even though nothing's happening to them. They're safe in school. They have friends, but they're still, it's like um, a red alert, like 911 is going off in their minds. And so then how is that then addressed? I mean, is it something that, like you said, this is the, the kid that we send to the counselor uh, and try to help out along those lines. How how can you proceed? I guess is probably more important than how do you proceed. Right. Uh, well, currently, um, it we it looks like discipline in schools. Like you know, this child um, is doing something wrong. The teacher, the classroom teacher, uh, the onus is on the classroom teacher to uh, start a behavior intervention plan, or BIP, and uh, he or she may collaborate with um, a, a crisis team uh, in the schools, uh, such as a school counselor, a psychologist, um, something like that, and um, an administrator, and a, okay. school, a school administrator, and then they determine uh, what steps to take. So it, it may be tiered. <laughs> you know, there's different tiers, uh, tier one, tier two, and tier three, and um, also, there's a new model that just came out called the multi-tiered support system, MTSS, 
Uh, so there are professionals uh, working on this. There, there are systems in place. With any problem, you want to have a system in place yeah. to, to document and have a con- conversation, uh, things like that. Um, however, um, as I mentioned before, uh, resiliency is not uh, the focus of it uh, as far as like in the curriculum. So teaching this proactively is kind of reactive okay. currently. Okay. And yeah. just curious, you're no longer in the, the Buffalo Public School District um, since um, moved down to another district, but uh, you were in the district. Mm-hmm. How many, did you see, I'll just use the word a lot. Did you see a lot of kids who were maybe could score low and or high mm-hmm. on that test? I mean, is that, is that common? Absolutely. Yeah. That's very common, yes. Um, I worked in um, Title I schools. And Title I schools have the highest concentration of poverty. And um, the the indicator of that is if they're getting a free free lunch. So if it's like 99% of the kids are getting free lunch, then that's an indicator of deep poverty. Uh, the school I worked at closed, but it was on uh, Broadway. It was called School 44, Lincoln Academy School 44. And it, it was a Title I school, and um, there was deep poverty. Uh, many of the kids... Um, did not have home telephones. So it was hard to reach the parents. They would come to school with no supplies, you know, no pencil, <laughs> you know, things like that. Uh, so, you know, reaching them where they are, you know, is very important to have supports in place because it could look like they're just acting out. You yeah. know, there needs to be discipline in right. place. I was going to ask that to, to, yeah. to follow up then just how would you see this manifest itself among the kids? I mean, that's you would see maybe kids acting out and but they were the kids without mm-hmm. the phones, the kids without the supplies. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was violence in the school, um, like fighting amongst themselves. A chair was thrown one time. Mm. <laughs> I was standing out in the hallway as the classes were passing, and a student went into the computer lab across from the library and got a chair and threw it at another girl, and about three or four other girls started jumping her after the chair was thrown on her. I never, I never witnessed anything like that before in my life. Um, so yeah, there was there was violence. Um, uh, there, it was hard to get the children to like really focus on academics, and um, I've I've seen it play out where it looks like high suspension. Uh, you know, the kids are um, not in school, but you want them to be in school. Right. right. <laughs> uh, they need to be there. Um, there's a disconnect between. Uh, the community in the school, because to the parents, it looks like you're picking on my child. You know, it's hard to come to a solution when things are like that. Dr. Sylvia Lloyd is with us uh, this morning on Buffalo What's Next, author of the book, The Buffalo Ten Massacre, Spoken Word Poetry for Healing and Understanding. Inside there, lesson plans for teachers to try to work their way through some of these complex issues. We've got about 10 minutes to go, so we want to maybe touch upon a couple of the other parts of the lessons moving forward uh, that mm-hmm. we can maybe get an understanding of, of, of how this process could work and what the ultimate goal is. Okay. Well, the ultimate goal is uh, to organize. Uh, we need to organize uh, the community, the black community, and uh, children need to learn um, how to uh, band together and how to form a block, how to uh, change laws in their community that do not benefit them. Uh, so 
uh, they want to do a little research. So uh, I'm a librarian. So, of course, <laughs> research is a part of these lessons. Right, right. Uh, we show them the deeper web, how to get to scholarly articles. Uh, but they also answer um, questions uh, such as how is the black community different from other communities when dealing with issues of inequity in society? Uh, and that's very important because uh, we know uh, sometimes um, there's riots um, you know, sometimes um, there's looting. So we want to look at that and say, is this the best way to go? <laughs> you know, uh, is this going to solve problems? Um, and we also look at the Black Lives Matter protests. Okay. So that's the third lesson plan entitled Read the World. Uh, we can research the Black Lives Matter protest, and it asks questions like, what did the protesters risk uh, when they went out there? And uh, did it solve any problems? What problems were solved? Uh, what do you think their values and beliefs were? And how how can we change America? Uh, and then it goes into look going into their community, which is a, a big piece of uh, culturally responsive uh, pedagogy. Uh, we want students to look at their communities because they need to see uh, their community, their family, uh, and themselves in the curriculum. So we're going to start there. Uh, so uh, researchers who have um, written about this are Gloria Latson Billings and Dr. Geneva Gay, uh, who really laid out, you know, how to go about culturally responsive uh, teaching and learning uh, so that the student can value, the, value themselves. Uh, for example, if you're going to teach them about the Constitution, you don't just show them the Constitution because right, right. they're not in there. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so you want to send them out into, the, into their community and say, is there an organization in your community that uses bylaws? If so, why and how do you think, you know, that helps uh, keep order in the in the organization? So they may go to their church. They may go to the CAO, you know, in their community and talk to someone. Are there any bylaws here and what are bylaws? And then we kind of gradually go into, you know, laws and the Constitution and why we need them, why they're important to us. Uh, so in the, the very last lesson in my book, um, the, the children are uh, directed or encouraged to go to a community meeting uh, in, their, in their community, such as a common council meeting, um, a school board meeting, right. any type of meeting in the community where they can see uh, leaders in the community uh, there to look for who has the power uh, in the community, uh, who lacks power, who's speaking, who's representing those who have the power. Uh, they're also learning skills, like interviewing skills, uh, the difference between um, open-ended questions, clarifying questions, um, identifying uh, who the oppressor is and who's being oppressed, and they're learning uh, research skills, um, and also uh, using technology and uh, different sources, uh, different sources uh, to locate um, scholarly information, such as uh, databases. Uh, there's a database called uh, Opposing Viewpoints okay. <laughs> Database, uh, which is great for children. So as, as a librarian, you know, we, we use that in the school library. Um, so um, the children, we want them to um, also take that information and uh, write about it and also go to social media uh, because social media causes a hyper-awareness of issues, and which is kind of how we got here today. Um, social media can help cha uh, change public opinion. Certainly. Uh, when people are aware of these issues. So we want them to uh, go to Twitter and um, 
use a hashtag and uh, get people interested. Like, how will you um, inform your community and the greater community? Because we know in 2020, that was a big part of it. Um, the greater community was protesting uh, the murder of George Floyd. Right. The hashtag BLM or Black Lives Matter, right? Yes, yes. Which is a big part of the Buffalo shooting. Uh, Black Lives Matter and um, the Buffalo shooting intersect. Uh, I guess, how, in what way would you say that they're intersecting? Uh, they intersect in the sense that uh, the Buffalo shooting was racially motivated and, um, you know, the killer researched uh, the highest concentration of black lives to right. kill. Right. And yeah. Came Whereas to... other, um, other mass shootings are not always racially motivated right. because uh, some are uh, Latinx on Latinx. Um, or white on white, or some uh, focus on um, the LGBTQ community. We're uh, coming down to our final uh, couple of minutes here with uh, Dr. Sylvia Lloyd. Uh, Dr. Lloyd, I, I can't uh, let you go here without just talking a little bit about uh, your your background growing up in Cold Spring and also uh, in the Fruit Belt. Uh, it was great. It was a community. It was a real community. <laughs> um, I've seen how it deteriorated into a hood, a, a neighborhood. Do you um, think that's more of reputation, though, than, than or? Um, um, it, it could have been back then when all of the different uh, classes, like poor, lower class, some criminals, and then upper class doctors and lawyers lived in the same community. Uh, but now, after 1970, I've seen it uh, deteriorate into a lack of services. So when I was growing up, there's always like Little League, uh, Girl Scouts, uh, there was the CAO. There were many organizations and services, and that's what a community is, where you get your support, uh, social support, financial support, um, spiritual support. Uh, but I see a lack of that today, and it's uh, more like high crimes, abandoned homes, um, underfunded schools, things like that. And, of course, uh, you've been in town throughout the weekend and here as well. Uh, talking with us this morning, which we're thankful for your, your time in that regard. Thank you. But, but what did you think about the events of the weekend commemorating the one-year anniversary? Was there a, any kind of sense in there of that there's a, a commitment inside this community that these 10 people um, are going not just be remembered, but their deaths are going to be used for positive change? Absolutely. And I'm glad you said for positive change because uh, there's mixed emotions. Uh, to have to commemorate uh, white supremacist violence uh, is sick within itself that right. we have to uh, do right. this. Right, of course, yes. Um, but at the same time, we want to turn this tragedy into an opportunity to grow and to learn from. Uh, so um, it, it was bittersweet. You know, it's good to see everyone out and people um, having their own issues, you know, that they want to discuss. I think it's this. I think it's that. You know, we can get to the root cause of this. Safety uh, is very important uh, to a lot of people now, um, heightened safety uh, in public, like in, in, at the supermarket, schools, uh, everywhere. Um, people need to feel safe. Um but yeah, there was some ambivalence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you had discussions with friends and family members about yes, it as well. I, I'm working on the documentary, um, which is going to be coming out um, uh, maybe like in a year. <laughs> I'm still working on it. But I spoke to a lot of people. A lot of people. I spoke to the president of Tops, 
a supermarket, which he's focused on the healing aspect, providing counseling for the workers there and um, heightened security, different security measures to keep the store safe. Um, I spoke to Antoine Thompson, who was a former senator, New York State senator, who was very instrumental in bringing tops there. Um, and um, he's very uh, he's very happy that it opened back up. Right, right. <laughs> that of was course. a big piece. Like, let's keep this uh, open. You know, there's so many services there for that community. Um, but I also spoke to. Um, Oh, gosh. A lot of people. Right, right. <laughs> so many people. Um, people who were in the store. Zaire, I spoke with. Zaire Goodman. Yes, yes. Who still seems uh, very much traumatized, very mm. much traumatized. Just from his body language, you know, you could tell um, so much healing needs to take place. Um, and also um, an, another person who was on his way to the store. He was taking his mom to the store, uh, Mr. Robinson. Um, and his mother was saying, no, just take me to Tops on Jefferson. I'm not going to take you out of your way. She's oh. elderly. And he said, no, Mom, I'm going to take you out you know, to Chictawaga so you can do all your shopping, take your time. So soon as he got to um, the store, she went inside. He's sitting in the parking lot in his uh, car waiting for her. And he gets the call. Mm. Yeah. We're looking forward to hearing more of your stories. Thank uh, you. Dr. Thank Sylvia you. Lloyd, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having this morning me. On congratulations on your show, <laughs> your award-winning show. <laughs> because of you and other members of the community, why the show was on. Uh, Dr. Sylvia Lloyd is the author of The Buffalo 10 Massacre, spoken word poetry for healing and understanding. Also earlier, we talked with members of our, our city, Action Buffalo, encouraging you to go to the public hearing tonight at 5 o'clock at City Hall on the budget. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL and Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.